Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Another World Audiobooks. I am so stoked to be here today. This is a very special episode. Uh, we have not ever done this before. So last year, we did the Christmas Carol audio drama, which was absolutely amazing. Honestly, probably still one of the things that I am most proud of with this podcast has just been that collaboration with, um, I don't know, there's almost a dozen other awesome vocal artists. And one of those vocal artists and I have stayed in touch. Well, I've stayed in touch with multiple, but uh, Nick. Nikki Brown. Uh, now uh, you recently got married, so it's not Nikki Brown anymore, right? <laughs> yes, it's Nikki Wagner now. Yes, <laughs> that's yes. correct. Yes, Nikki Wagner, the the married lady, uh, coming <laughs> back you. on the podcast, gracing us with her presence today uh, with a very special announcement. Something that I've kind of been keeping close to my vest. I kept hinting at it, and guys, I'm we're ready to announce now. We are going to be bringing you some bonus episodes of Another World Audiobooks. I'm so excited about this. Uh, some of these awesome vocal artists that I've been in touch with uh, since the, the Christmas Carol collaboration have come back to, uh, yeah, just do another, basically an encore performance uh, of their own book. So, Nikki, uh, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. I'm so stoked to be here and surprise everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big surprise, uh, because yeah. this is not going to be how we normally do it. Uh, the way we normally do it, if you've been around this podcast, you know, every Sunday coming out with an episode, uh, it's usually a chapter, maybe two chapters if we're lucky, uh, just uh, you know, time constraints and all that sort of thing. So I have brought on, uh, Nikki has graciously volunteered to do an entire audiobook, and we're going to be releasing that uh, multiple chapters per day over the next week. So you're getting a ton of bonus con content. Uh, all because of Nikki's generosity here. So, uh, Nikki, why don't you tell us what book we get to dive into here? We are going to be reading The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. Is it Frances or is it Frances? Nice. I don't know. Frances. Frances. <laughs> you have such a nice accent. It sounds good either way. Um, <laughs> so that is that is really exciting. Um, it's it's one of those books uh, I just never got around to reading. Uh, was it one that, that you had read before? Yes, it, it was a book I actually was introduced to when I was about eight. And I was kept on from school that day because I was sick. And I remember my mum put on, I think it was the Disney Channel or something, and it was on the, the like, film version. And I felt so uh. entranced by it. And so my mum took me to the library and um, actually checked out the book for me. And I read the book and I just thought it was absolutely fire i thought it was magical ah, and so nice. um when we started kicking around ideas for the secret garden I'm like there we go that's the one that's awesome that is awesome what what was it about the book that just grabbed you at that time well when i was eight when i was a kid and i read it and then saw the film i felt like it was such an amazing concept that it was about you know a garden that seemed to have magical and healing powers but as an adult I I read it over and I get a little bit more out of it which is you know the the more I don't want to say philosophical aspect of it which is yeah. you know if you have a positive mentality and a positive way of thinking then you're going to get more positive results. And there's several characters nice. throughout the book who start off with that more negative mentality, that more negative way of thinking, and then 
once the garden comes into play a little bit more, then it starts to eradicate a little bit and each of them start to have a more improved life experience. That's awesome. Yeah, like I said, it's not one that I have read before, so I'm stoked to be able to get into this. Uh, I missed missed out on that, so (laughs) that's really (laughs) cool. So it it was just kind of your connection to it that made you want to do it here on the podcast? Well, yeah, I would I would say it was, you know, just that that personal connection once we compiled that list. And then, it, it, you know, I just really feel like there is something very healing about being outside and, and being in nature and just kind of letting all it fall away. I, I feel in this 21st century that we're living in where we're constantly ruled by our electronics, that we don't get that as often as we should. And as a result, it's created a lot of dis-ease in the world. And so I think we kind of, it, it still has a message that we can listen to today and, and learn from, I feel. I love that. Yeah, no, I've definitely been experiencing that myself here, even within this last week. So uh, with that in mind, I really can't wait to listen to it. Um, yeah, so let's let's just uh, maybe for, for people like me, who uh, like I kind of have, <laughs> I think I saw like part of the movie or something at some point. So I kind of have a, a basic idea, but maybe just give somebody kind of the, the teaser uh, plot overview, you know, no, no spoilers, just uh, <laughs> a little bit of a, a, a plot overview for people who, who aren't familiar with the book. Right. Okay. So the main plot of this story is it's about a nine-year-old little girl named Mary Lennox who starts off in India. And I'm just going to call the spade a spade. The girl is an absolute brat. She really, really is. is. She has servants that she abuses and she's just such a mean little thing. And her entire family and and all of the servants are taken away by the cholera. And so she's shipped off to England to go live with a distant uncle. And, you know, she she goes outside eventually at some point because at first she doesn't want to go. And then she goes outside and she discovers that there is a locked door in the in the backyard that leads to a garden that nobody has been in for 10 years. And it comes with a host of other mysteries that get solved along. T- Ooh. Yeah. It's, it's kind of mysterious like anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, based on how many Sherlock Holmes books we've done on this podcast, I think everybody enjoys a good mystery. So <laughs> I am looking forward to this. Man, this is going to be great. So why don't you just kind of catch the audience up a little bit? I know we we had done, uh, for the people who have been around since at least last year, um, you played the Ghost of Christmas Past, if I remember correctly, yes. on the Christmas Carol. Is that right? Yes, yes, absolutely yes. correct. Yeah, that was so much fun. Uh, you did such a good job on that. And we had a little kind of get to know you uh, interview before we launched uh, the, the audio drama last year. Um, but why, for, for people that are just tuning in, tell them a little bit about yourself. What's your, your voiceover story? Like, how'd you get into to doing this, this crazy stuff? I got into voiceover some 13 years ago when I was in university. Um, I had a professor, I as part of my major, because I, I majored in theater and university, and one of my professors was teaching me voice and movement. And as part of our exams in the middle of the semester, we had to go and we had to go downtown and do a voiceover. And Whoa. 
yeah, it was really awesome. I had never done a voiceover in my life at that point. And um, the creative director had each of us go and do the same reading, but just just to get a feel what it was was like. And I did the reading. I didn't know what I was doing. I just read it. And she pulled me aside after I got done doing it. And she was like, look, I'm not giving this offer to any of your classmates. Don't tell anybody, but I'm hiring you on the spot. I love your voice. Let's do it. Let's get you signed up. Sign this kid. And, you know, after that, then, you know, I would get to do a bunch of audio books. And for a while there, just kind of tapered off a little bit. But after Christmas Carol, I have more work than I know what to do with, which is a good problem to yeah. have. <laughs> wow. That is so awesome. So tell us a bit about like what 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 type of work are you doing? Are you doing audiobooks or commercials or where where can people hear you? Oh gosh. Um mostly right now I'm doing a bunch of audiobooks. You can hear me all over YouTube. Um, all over YouTube. Um Mostly you can hear me on a channel called the Isekai Audio Tales. That's where most of my um, narrating work is. You probably won't recognize my voice at first because I do most of my work over there in an American accent. So ah, uh, Nice. Yeah. I Actually, you know, fun fact, I actually do about 98% of my work in an American accent. Ah, yeah. That's so funny. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much I, unless somebody... I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I do probably 98% of my <laughs> the, the podcast <laughs> with a British accent. So <laughs> we need to trade places or something. It's funny. It's funny. Actually, it's, it's, it, there's something fun, right? Like, okay, I'll give you a phrase. Oh, yeah. I'll give you a phrase. You say it to me in your best English accent, and then you give me a phrase, and I'll say it in my best American accent, and we'll, we'll trade <laughs> off. Okay. Okay. So, Sounds good. Right, you ready? Okay. Um. How about Mary had a little lamb in your best accent? All right, are we doing like like highbrow English or How like you want to do it? like uh, Cockney? Which I was telling my <laughs> yes, yes, yes. If I was talking to my baby, I would say yes. Uh, Mary, she was a young lady who had a little lamb, something along those lines. Very good, very good. It's pretty How do cool. I do? No, this is pretty okay. good. Nine, nine okay. out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> nine out of ten. Okay. All right. I'll take that. I'll take that from a, a real Brit. <laughs> um, yeah. So how about um, how do y'all come on inside and have some biscuits and gravy? Oh, you're going to give me a tough one, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that hi y'all or was it howdy y'all? Howdy. You got to go with howdy. Howdy. All right. All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> I can do this. I can do this. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let's see. So howdy, y'all. Why don't y'all come inside and get some bits and gravy? Biscuits and gravy? Is that what it is? Biscuits and gravy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Have you ever had biscuits and gravy? They're, they're, they're I delicious. have had biscuits and gravy. Yeah. It's oh, delicious. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Good yeah. stuff. Uh, How did well, I do? Was that, was that at least a five? That, uh, yeah, yeah, that was good. <laughs> we'll have to work on the the biscuits part, though. That's uh, yeah. What, what, was it <laughs> keyword there? Bis biscuits, biscuits. I don't know. <laughs> biscuit. Biscuits. Biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> I work on it. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again, Nikki, for for putting together this. Um, we were talking before we got on the uh, actual like interview part of this. Um, you are a bit of a perfectionist. Uh, I, I kind of am getting that feeling anyway from <laughs> what you were saying. I am. I am guilty as charged. I am such a perfectionist. But like, <laughs> to be clear, like only when it comes to me and my own work, like I'm the most patient person ever when it comes to somebody else. But if it comes to like my own work, I'm just like, oh, no, 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 no. This is rubbish. Do it again. You know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, so that resulted, ladies and gentlemen, in you having um, not uh, one shot, not two shots, but three shots at a, a perfect version of the Secret Garden. So what's coming at you over the next uh, couple of days is going to be the perfect version of Secret Garden <laughs> from uh, Miss uh, Nikki Wagner. Oh uh, man, I'm so excited about this. Um, I, I'm yeah, just can't thank you enough. It's such a, a generous gift that Nikki is is giving us to allow us to be able to, to play this on the podcast. So thank you, Nikki. And um, I want to uh, I want people to go and check you out on on your other stuff and and make you more famous than you are um, because <laughs> uh, you deserve it. So uh, why don't you let people know like where where can they check out some of the stuff you've done? Where where can they send you some you know social media love or you know give you a like on YouTube or what's what's the best way for them do that um the best way that you can find me is um you can find me on isekai audio tales on youtube that's i-s-e-k-a-i um the specific ones you can find me on um uh, strike the blood and little tyrants doesn't want to meet with a bad end and pretty soon the second coming of gluttony and also pretty soon here it'll be launched in the next week or so i have formed my own website at last and you can find me there on nikki wagner's voice.com that would be an i-c-e-e-w-a-g-n-e-r-s.com yeah, she's got the the cool spelling of Nikki. I like I it. Do. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and we will. I'm going to put those no, uh, those links in the show notes, people. So uh, don't worry about having to, to spell uh, any of that stuff. You can just go ahead down into the show notes and click stuff, and uh, it's way easier. Um, but yeah, go check out Nikki's stuff. Um, I, yeah, I've I've seen a little bit of it here and there, and it is is really really cool, really fun stuff. Um, and if you enjoy good voice acting, you definitely want to check it out. So. Nikki, thank you again for, for putting all the work into it. Um, I guess maybe just as a little teaser, did you have a favorite chapter that we could uh, let people know to, to look out for that chapter as it comes up? Oh, my goodness. Um, I would that probably... That be a hard question. <laughs> I know. That's like asking me to choose my favorite child, right? Um, <laughs> chapter 10, I would say, off the top of my head, chapter 10, Dickon, because um, I really got to Yorkshire it up. Oh, I tried my best to Yorkshire. Yeah. Um, that's a nice. very, very, very hard dialect to master because it's like three or four dialects basically <laughs> rolled into one. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm from it. the UK and I have a hard time doing New Yorkshire accent. But, you know, Dickon is my favorite character. He's just he's such an nice. amazing, amazing little kid. And uh, so that, that chapter just really focusing on him is probably my favorite chapter. So chapter 10. 
All right, people, watch out for chapter 10. Um, I, yeah, you, you guys are getting a real treat here. Like, not only did Nikki, like, volunteer her, her time and effort here, but <laughs> this is a, a real Brit who actually knows, like, the difference between all the accents. Like, when I do it, it's just kind of random British accents thrown in there. <laughs> You're getting the real deal here from Nikki. So enjoy uh, these next coming days. Tons of bonus content. And make sure to go ahead and check out Nikki with the links below. Nikki, thank you again so much. And uh, I'm looking forward to listening to all this myself i will definitely be downloading and listening thanks again thank you so much all right so once again so excited to be bringing this to you and one more thing that i had to share uh nikki and i had a great conversation and afterwards she she sent me a a message and it was just i I asked her you know on the on the interview there why she had chosen the secret garden and then uh, she sent me a message afterward that kind of expounded a bit more on her her original answer there and uh at first she she wasn't sure if she wanted to to share it but then she uh, just sent me a message a little bit ago said that she's uh you know reflected and prayed over it and just wants to share it with the listeners and and, uh, just in case this story might bless or inspire somebody so um, this is Nikki's words and I just wanted to, to share it with you right now I just felt compelled to share this with you today during our interview you asked why I chose the secret garden to read the short answer was that I feel it has a relevant message for today's readers and listeners but the long answer is that I have a special connection to the book From February to April of last year, my husband was in the hospital with a TBI, traumatic brain injury. He couldn't walk very well, so had to have a wheelchair. His eyes couldn't focus properly. He couldn't remember simple things like his birthday. I could go on. One day, I was pushing him in his wheelchair when I saw that there was a healing garden on the second floor. We went into it, and I tell you, it was quite possibly one of the most beautiful sights I've ever seen. Roses of every color, waterfalls, prayer circles, and a healing bell. It was enormous, and patients were supposed to ring the bell when they got discharged. Little improvements started happening after I started taking him, mostly his walking. For some reason, it reminded me of the secret garden. I downloaded a copy and read some of the book to my husband every night to put him to sleep. I truly believe he got the message of it, that if you believe you'll be better, you will be. My husband did get his chance to ring that bell as he got discharged in April. Sometimes I swear I can still hear that bell today. As of now, he walks perfectly fine, and aside from some short-term memory loss, has made a full recovery. I believe in my heart of hearts that he found God's divine healing in that garden. I wanted to share this book with your listeners to share the power of that miracle with them. This is why I've been such a perfectionist with recording and editing this, and so nervous that it wasn't good. At any rate, this is why I chose The Secret Garden. I, anyway, I just wanted to I wanted to share that with everybody who's listening. Um, a lot of times, you know, just the Sherlock Holmes book or whatever, they're just they're fun, good reads, and that's what Another World Audiobooks is about. But more than that, when I started this podcast, one of the things that really struck me was just the power of words. And I just I loved that story from Nikki. It's so awesome how the book that was written, you know, years and years ago had such a big impact on her, her husband, her, her life and everything. And it's just so cool. So when you share the podcast, you're not just sharing, you know, some random book, you're sharing something that could potentially impact people's lives. And that to me, uh, I mean, that's why I've been doing this for over 200 episodes. And, uh, just again, thank you, Nikki, so much for sharing that story, for sharing your heart through this book and your narration of it. So ladies and gentlemen, Without further ado, we're going to be getting into The Secret Garden from special guest narrator Nikki Wagner. 
so excited about this and um, I wanted to just mention just so everybody knows what's going on um, we will be doing this here this week so you're going to get a couple episodes right now and or a couple chapters right now and then this coming week you're going to get bonus episodes every single day for the coming week so it's kind of a, a pr- early Christmas present for you and then uh, next Sunday uh, we'll be back to our regular scheduled Emma and then we're going to take a little Christmas break and do a Christmas carol and then after that it'll be right about the uh, first part of January we're going to jump right back into Emma so thank you guys so much for listening thank you for sharing this um, who knows whose life you can impact with, with these stories that we're sharing here on the podcast all right now without any further ado I give you the secret guard narrated by Nikki Wagner The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Vallette Narrated by Nikki Wagner Chapter 1 There is no one left When Mary Lennox was sent to Misselwaite Manor to live with her uncle, everybody said she was the most disagreeable-looking child ever seen. It was true, too. She had a little thin face and a little thin body, thin light hair and a sour expression. Her hair was yellow, and her face was yellow because she had been born in India and had always been ill in one way or another. Her father had held a position under the English government and had always been busy and ill himself, and her mother had been a great beauty who cared only to go to parties and amuse herself with gay people. She had not wanted a little girl at all, and when Mary was born, she handed her over to the care of an ayah, who was made to understand that if she wished to please the Mem Sahib, she must keep the child out of sight as much as possible. So, when she was a sickly, fretful, ugly little baby, she was kept out of the way. And when she became a sickly, fretful, toddling thing, she was kept out of the way also. She never remembered seeing familiarly anything but the dark faces of her Arya and the other native servants. And as they always obeyed her and gave her her own way in everything, because the Mem Sahib would be angry if she was disturbed by her crying, by the time she was six years old, she was as tyrannical and selfish a little pig as ever lived. The young English governess who came to teach her to read and write disliked her so much that she gave up her place in three months, and when other governesses came to try to fill it, they always went away in a shorter time than the first one. So, if Mary had not chosen to really want to know how to read books, she would never have learned her letters at all. One frightfully hot morning, when she was about nine years old, she awakened feeling very cross. And she became crosser still when she saw that the servant who stood by her bedside was not her ayah. Why did you come? she said to the strange woman. I will not let you stay. Send my ayah to me. The woman looked frightened, but she only stammered that the ayah could not come. And when Mary threw herself into a passion and beat and kicked her... She looked only more frightened and repeated that it was not possible for the Arya to come to Missy Sahib. There was something mysterious.
mysterious in the air that morning. Nothing was done in its regular order, and several of the native servants seemed missing, while those whom Murray saw slunked or hurried about with ashy and scared faces. But no one would tell her anything, and her ayah did not come. She was actually left alone as the morning went on, and at last she wandered out into the garden and began to play by herself under a tree near the veranda. She pretended that she was making a flower bed, and she stuck big scarlet hibiscus blossoms into little heaps of earth, all the time growing more and more angry, and muttering to herself the things she would say and the names she would call Sadie when she returned. Pig! Pig! Daughter of pigs! she said, because to call a native a pig is the worst insults of all. She was grinding her teeth and saying this over and over again when she heard her mother come out on the veranda with someone. She was with a fair young man, and they stood talking together in low, strange voices. Mary knew the fair young man who looked like a boy. She had heard that he was a very young officer who had just come from England. The child stared at him, but she stared most at her mother. She always did this when she had a chance to see her, because the Mem Sahib, Mary used to call her that oftener than anything else, was such a tall, slim, pretty person, and wore such lovely clothes. Her hair was like curly silk, and she had a delicate little nose which seemed to be disdaining things, and she had large, laughing eyes. All her clothes were thin and floating, and Mary said they were full of lace. They looked fuller of lace than ever this morning, but her eyes were not laughing at all. They were large and scared, and lifted imploringly to the fair boy officer's face. Is it so very bad? Oh, is it? Mary heard her say. Awfully, the young man answered in a trembling voice. Awfully, Mrs. Lennox. You ought to have gone to the hills two weeks ago. The Mem Sahib wrung her hands. Oh, I know I ought, she cried. I only stayed to go to that silly dinner party. What a fool I was! At that very moment, such a loud sound of wailing broke out from the servants' quarters that she clutched the young man's arm, and Mary stood shivering from head to foot. The wailing grew wilder and wilder. What is it? What is it? Mrs. Lennox gasped. Someone has died, answered the boy officer. You did not say it had broken out among your servants. I did not know, the Mem Sahib cried. Come with me. Come with me. And she turned and ran into the house. After that, appalling things happened, and the mysteriousness of the morning was explained to Mary. The cholera had broken out in its most fatal form, and people were dying like flies. The ayah had been taken ill in the night, and it was because she had just died that the servants had wailed in the huts. Before the next day, three other servants were dead, and others had run away in terror. There was panic on every side, and dying people in all the bungalows. During the confusion and bewilderment of the second day, Mary hid herself in the nursery and was forgotten by everyone. Nobody thought of her. Nobody wanted her. And strange things happened of which she knew nothing. 
Mary alternately cried and slept through the hours. She only knew that people were ill and that she heard mysterious and frightening sounds. Once she crept into the dining room and found it empty. Though a partly finished meal was on the table and chairs, and plates looked as if they had been hastily pushed back when the diners rose suddenly for some reason. The child ate some fruit and biscuits, and being thirsty, she drank a glass of wine, which stood nearly filled. It was sweet, and she did not know how strong it was. Very soon it made her intensely drowsy, and she went back to her nursery and shut herself in again. Frightened by cries she heard in the huts, and by the hurrying sound of feet, the wine made her so sleepy that she could scarcely keep her eyes open, and she lay down on her bed and knew nothing more for a long time. Many things happened during the hours in which she slept so heavily, but she was not disturbed by the wails and the sound of things being carried in and out of the bungalow. When she awakened, she lay and stared at the wall. The house was perfectly still. She had never known it to be so silent before. She heard neither voices nor footsteps, and wondered if everybody had got well of the cholera and all the trouble was over. She wondered also who would take care of her now her ayah was dead. There would be a new ayah, and perhaps she would know some new stories. Mary had been rather tired of the old ones. She did not cry because her nurse had died. She was not an affectionate child, and had never cared much for any one. The noise and hurrying about and wailing over the cholera had frightened her, and she had been angry because no one seemed to remember that she was alive. Every one was too panic-stricken to think of a little girl no one was fond of. When people had the cholera, it seemed that they remembered nothing but themselves. But if everyone had got well again, surely someone would remember and come to look for her. But no one came, and as she lay waiting, the house seemed to grow more and more silent. She heard something rustling on the matting, and when she looked down, she saw a little snake gliding across and watching her with eyes like jewels. She was not frightened because he was a harmless little thing who would not hurt her, and he seemed in a hurry to get out of the room. He slipped under the door, and she watched him. How queer and quiet it is! She said, "It sounds as if there were no one in the bungalow but me and the snake." Almost the next minute, she heard footsteps in the compound, and then on the veranda, they were men's footsteps. And the men entered the bungalow and talked in low voices. No one went to meet or speak to them, and they seemed to open doors and look into rooms. What desolation! She heard one voice say, "That pretty, pretty woman. I suppose the child too. I heard there was a child, though no one ever saw her." Mary was standing in the middle of the nursery when they opened the door a few minutes later. She looked an ugly, cross little thing, and was frowning because she was beginning to be hungry and feel disgracefully neglected. The first man who came in was a large officer she had once seen talking to her father. He looked tired, and troubled, but when he saw her, he was so startled that he almost jumped back. Barney! He cried out, "There's a child here, a child alone." In a place like 
this mercy on us. Who is she? I am Mary Lennox, the little girl said, drawing herself up stiffly. She thought the man was very rude to call her father's bungalow a place like this. I fell asleep when everyone had the cholera, and I have only just wakened up. Why does nobody come? It is the child no one ever saw, exclaimed the man, turning to his companions. She has actually been forgotten. Why was I forgotten? Mary said, stamping her foot. Why does nobody come? The young man, whose name is Barney, looked at her very sadly. Mary even thought she saw him wink his eyes, as if to wink tears away. Poor little kid, he said. There is nobody left to come. It was in that strange and sudden way that Mary found out that she had neither father nor mother left, that they had died and been carried away in the night, and that the few native servants who had not died also left the house as quickly as they could get out of it, none of them even remembering that there was a Missy Sahib. That was why the place was so quiet. It was true that there was no one in the bungalow but herself and the little rustling snake. Chapter 2 Mistress Mary Quite Contrary Mary had liked to look at her mother from a distance, as she had thought her very pretty. But as she knew very little of her, she could scarcely have been expected to love her, or to miss her very much when she was gone. She did not miss her at all, in fact, and as she was a self-absorbed child, she gave her entire thought to herself, as she had always done. If she had been older, she would no doubt have been very anxious at being left alone in the world. But she was very young, and as she had always been taken care of, she supposed she always would be. What she thought was that she would like to know if she was going to nice people who would be polite to her and give her her own way, as her Arya and the other native servants had done. She knew that she was not going to stay at the English clergyman's house where she was taken at first. She did not want to stay. The English clergyman was poor, and he had five children nearly all the same age, and they wore shabby clothes, and were always quarrelling and snatching toys from each other. Mary hated their untidy bungalow, and was so disagreeable to them that after the first day or two, nobody would play with her. By the second day, they had given her a nickname, which made her furious. It was Basil who thought of it first. Basil was a little boy with impudent blue eyes and a turned-up nose, and Mary hated him. She was playing by herself under a tree, just as she had been playing the day the cholera broke out. She was making heaps of earth and paths for a garden, and Basil came and stood near to watch her. Presently, he got rather interested and suddenly made a suggestion. "'Why don't you put a heap of stones there and pretend it is a rockery?' he said. "'There, in the middle!' and he leaned over her to point. "'Go away!' cried Mary. "'I don't want boys! Go away!' For a moment Basil looked angry, and then he began to tease. He was always teasing his sisters. He danced round and round her and made faces and sang and laughed. 
Mistress Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and Mary golds all in a row. He sang it until the other children heard and laughed too. And the crosser Mary got, the more they sang Mistress Mary, quite contrary. And after that, as long as she stayed with them, they called her Mistress Mary quite contrary when they spoke of her to each other and often when they spoke to her. You are going to be sent home, Basil said to her, at the end of the week, and we're glad of it. I am glad of it too, answered Mary. Where is home? <laughs> she doesn't know where home is, said Basil. With seven-year-old scorn, it's England, of course. Our grandmamma lives there, and our sister Mabel was sent to her last year. You are not going to your grandmamma. You have none. You are going to your uncle. His name is Mister Archibald Craven. I don't know anything about him," snapped Mary. "I know you don't," Basil answered. "You don't know anything." Girls never do. I heard father and mother talking about him. He lives in a great big desolate old house in the country, and no one goes near him. He's so cross he won't let them, and they wouldn't come if he would let them. He's a hunchback, and he's horrid. I don't believe you," said Mary, and she turned her back and stuck her fingers in her ears because she would not listen any more. But. She thought over it a great deal afterward, and when Mrs. Crawford told her that night that she was going to sail away to England in a few days to go to her uncle, Mr. Archibald Craven, who lived at Misselthwaite Manor, she looked so stony and stubbornly uninterested that they did not know what to think about her. They tried to be kind to her, but she only turned her face away when Mrs. Crawford attempted to kiss her, and held herself stiffly when Mr. Crawford patted her shoulder. She is such a plain child," Mrs. Crawford said pityingly afterward. And her mother was such a pretty creature. She had a very pretty manner too. And Mary has the most unattractive ways I ever saw in a child. <laughs> the, the children call her Mistress Mary quite contrary. <laughs> And and though it's naughty of them, one can't help understanding it. Perhaps if her mother had carried her pretty face and her pretty manners often into the nursery, Mary might have learned some pretty ways too. It is very sad. Now the poor beautiful thing is gone. To remember that many people never even knew that she had a child at all. I believe she scarcely ever looked at her," sighed Mrs. Crawford. When her ayah was dead, there was no one to give a thought to the little thing. Oh, think of the servants running away and leaving her all alone in that deserted bungalow. Colonel McGraw said he nearly jumped out of his skin when he opened the door and found her standing by herself in the middle of the room. Mary made the long voyage to England under the care of an officer's wife, who was taking her children to leave them in a boarding school. She was very much absorbed in her own little boy and girl, and was rather glad to hand the child over to the woman Mr. Archibald Craven sent to meet her in London. The woman was his housekeeper at Misselwaite Manor, and her name was Mrs. Medlock. She was a stout woman with very red cheeks 
and sharp black eyes. She wore a very purple dress, a black silk mantle with jet fringe on it, and a black bonnet with purple velvet flowers, which stuck up and trembled when she moved her head. Mary did not like her at all, but as she very seldom liked people, there was nothing remarkable in that. Besides, which was very evident, Mrs. Medlock did not think much of her. My word, she's a plain little piece of goods," she said. "And we'd heard that her mother was a beauty. She hasn't handed much of it down, has she, Mum? Perhaps she will improve as she grows older," the officer's wife said good-naturedly. "If she were not so sallow and had a nicer expression, her features are rather good." Children alter so much. She'll have to alter a good deal," answered Mrs. Medlock. "And there's nothing likely to improve children at Misselthwaite, if you ask me." They thought Mary was not listening because she was standing a little apart from them at the window of the private hotel they had gone to. She was watching the passing buses and cabs and people, but she heard quite well and was made very curious about her uncle and the place he lived in. What sort of place was it, and what would he be like? What was a hunchback? She had never seen one. Perhaps there were none in India. Since she had been living in other people's houses and had had no ayah, she had begun to feel lonely and to think queer thoughts which were new to her. She had begun to wonder why she had never seemed to belong to anyone, even when her father and mother had been alive. Other children seemed to belong to their fathers and mothers, but she had never seemed to really be anyone's little girl. She had had servants and food and clothes, but no one had taken any notice of her. She did not know that this was because she was a disagreeable child, but then, of course, she did not know that she was disagreeable. She often thought that other people were, but she did not know that she was so herself. She thought Mrs. Medlock the most disagreeable person she had ever seen, with her common high-coloured face and a common fine bonnet. When the next day they set out on their journey to Yorkshire, she walked through the station to the railway carriage with her head up, and trying to keep as far away from her as she could, because she did not want to seem to belong to her. It would have made her angry to think people imagined she was her little girl. But Mrs. Medlock was not in the least disturbed by her and her thoughts. She was the kind of woman who would stand no nonsense from young ones. At least this is what she would have said if she had been asked. She had not wanted to go to London just when her sister Maria's daughter was going to be married, but she had a comfortable, well-paid place as housekeeper at Miss Waite Manor, and the only way in which she could keep it was to do at once what Mister Archibald Craven told her to do. She never dared even to ask a question. Captain Lennox and his wife died of the cholera, Mister Craven had said in his short, cold way. Captain Lennox was my wife's brother, and I am their daughter's guardian. The child is to be brought here. You must go to London and bring her yourself. So she packed her small trunk and made the journey. Mary sat in her corner of the railway carriage and looked plain and fretful. She had nothing to read or to look at, and she had folded her thin little black-gloved hands in her lap. Her black dress made her look yellower than ever. 
and her limp light hair straggled from under her black crepe hat. A more mild-looking young one I never saw in my life, Mrs. Medlock thought. Mild is a Yorkshire word and means spoiled and pettish. She had never seen a child who sat so still without doing anything. And at last she got tired of watching her and began to talk in a brisk, hard voice. I suppose I may as well tell you something about where you are going to, she said. Do you know anything about your uncle? No, said Mary. Never heard your father and mother talk about him? No, said Mary, frowning. She frowned because she remembered that her father and mother had never talked to her about anything in particular. Certainly they had never told her things. <laughs> said Mrs. Medlock, staring at her queer, unresponsive little face. She did not say any more for a few moments, and then she began again. I suppose you might as well be told something to prepare you. You are going to a queer place. Mary said nothing at all, and Mrs. Medlock looked rather discomfited by her apparent indifference. But, after taking a breath, she went on, Not but that it's a grand big place in a gloomy way, and Mr. Craven's proud of it in his way, and that's gloomy enough too. The house is six hundred years old, and it's on the edge of the moor, and there's near a hundred rooms in it, though most of them shut up and locked. And there's pictures, and fine old furniture, and things that's been there for ages. And there's a big park round it, and gardens and trees with branches trailing to the ground. Some of them. She paused and took another breath. But there's nothing else, she ended suddenly. Mary had begun to listen in spite of herself. It all sounded so unlike India, and anything new rather attracted her. But she did not intend to look as if she were interested. That was one of her happy, disagreeable ways. So she sat still. Well, said Mrs. Medlock, what do you think of it? Nothing, she answered. I know nothing about such places. That made Mrs. Medlock laugh a short sort of laugh. Eh, <laughs> she said, but you are like an old woman. Don't you care? It doesn't matter, said Mary, whether I care or not. You are right enough there, said Mrs. Medlock. It doesn't. What you're to be kept at Misselthwaite Manor for, I don't know, unless because it's the easiest way. He's not going to trouble himself about you, that's sure and certain. He never troubles himself about no one. She stopped herself, as if she had just remembered something in time. He's got a crooked back, she said. That set him wrong. He was a sour young man, and got no good of all his money and big place till he was married. Mary's eyes turned toward her in spite of her intention not to seem to care. She had never thought of the hunchbacks being married, and she was a trifle surprised. Mrs. Medlock saw this, and as she was a talkative woman, she continued with more interest. This was one way of passing some of the time, at any rate. She was a sweet, pretty thing, and he'd have walked the world over to get her a blade of grass she wanted. Nobody thought she'd marry him, but she did. 
and people said she married him for his money. But she didn't. She didn't. Positively. When she died, Mary gave a little involuntary jump. Oh, did she die? she exclaimed, quite without meaning to. She had just remembered a French fairy story she had once read called Riquet à la Rupe. It had been about a poor hunchback and a beautiful princess, and it had made her suddenly sorry for Mr. Archibald Craven. Yes, she died, Mrs. Medlock answered, and it made him queerer than ever. He cares about nobody. He won't see people. Most of the time he goes away, and when he is at Mistlethwaite, he shuts himself up in the West Wing and won't let anyone but Pitcher see him. Pitcher's an old fellow, but he took care of him when he was a child, and he knows his ways. It sounded like something in a book, and it did not make Mary feel cheerful. A house with a hundred rooms, nearly all shut up and with their doors locked? A house on the edge of a moor, whatsoever a moor was, sounded dreary. A man with a crooked back who shut himself up also? She stared out of the window with her lips pinched together, and it seemed quite natural that the rain should have begun to pour down in grey slanting lines and splash and stream down the window panes. If the pretty wife had been alive, she might have made things cheerful by being something like her own mother, and by running in and out and going to parties as she had done in frocks full of lace. But she was not there any more. You needn't expect to see him, because ten to one you won't, said Mrs. Medlock, and you mustn't expect that there will be people to talk to you. You'll have to play about and look after yourself. You'll be told what rooms you can go into and what rooms you're to keep out of. There's gardens enough. But when you're in the house, don't go wandering and poking about. Mr. Craven won't have it. I shall not want to go poking about, said Sarah Little Mary. And just as suddenly as she'd begun to be rather sorry for Mr. Archibald Craven, she began to cease to be sorry and to think he was unpleasant enough to deserve all that had happened to him. And she turned her face toward the streaming panes of the window of the railway carriage and gazed at the grey rainstorm which looked as if it would go on for ever and steadily that the greyness grew wider and wider before her eyes, and she fell asleep. Chapter 3 Across the Moor she slept a long time, and when she awakened, Mrs. Medlock had brought a lunch basket at one of the stations, and they had some chicken and cold beef and bread and butter and some hot tea. The rain seemed to be streaming down more heavily than ever, and everybody in the station wore wet and glistening waterproofs. The guard lighted the lamps in the carriage, and Mrs. Medlock cheered up very much over her tea and chicken and beef. She ate a great deal, and afterward fell asleep herself, and Mary sat and stared at her, and watched her fine bonnet slip on one side until she herself fell asleep once more in the corner of the carriage, lulled by the splashing of the rain against the windows. It was quite dark when she awakened again. The train had stopped at a station, and Mrs. Medlock was shaking her. 
You have had to sleep, she said. It's time to open your eyes. We're at Thwaite Station and we've got a long drive before us. Mary stood and tried to keep her eyes open while Mrs Medlock collected her parcels. The little girl did not offer to help her, because in India, native servants always picked up or carried things, and it seemed quite proper that other people should wait on one. The station was a small one, and nobody but themselves seemed to be getting out of the train. The station master spoke to Mrs. Medlock in a rough, good-natured way, pronouncing his words in a queer, broad fashion which Mary found out afterward was Yorkshire. I see that's got back, he said, and there's brought the young un with thee. Aye, that's her, answered Mrs. Midlock, speaking with a Yorkshire accent herself, and jerking her head over her shoulder toward Mary. How's that, missus? Well in now. The carriage is waiting outside for thee. A brougham stood on the road before the little outside platform. Mary saw that it was a smart carriage, and that it was a smart footman who helped her in. His long waterproof coat and the waterproof covering of his hat were shining and dripping with rain as everything was, the burly station master included. When he shut the door, mounted the box with the coachman, and they drove off, the little girl found herself seated in a comfortably cushioned corner. But she was not inclined to go to sleep again. She sat and looked out to the window, curious to see something of the road over which she was being driven to the queer place Mrs. Medlock had spoken of. She was not at all a timid child, and she was not exactly frightened, but she felt that there was no knowing what might happen in a house with a hundred rooms nearly all shut up, a house standing on the edge of a moor. "'What is a moor?' she said suddenly to Mrs. Medlock. "'Look out of the window in about ten minutes and you'll see.' The woman answered, We've got to drive five miles across Missile Moor before we get to the manor. You won't see much because it's a dark night, but you can see something. Mary asked no more questions, but waited in the darkness of a corner, keeping her eyes on the window. The carriage lamps cast rays of light a little distance ahead of them, and she caught glimpses of the things they passed. After they had left the station, they had driven through a tiny village, and she had seen whitewashed cottages and the lights of a public house. Then they had passed a church and a vicarage and a little shop window or so in a cottage with toys and sweets and odd things set out for sale. Then they were on the high road and saw hedges and trees. After that, there seemed nothing different for a long time. Or at least it seemed a long time to her. At last, the horses began to go more slowly, as if they were climbing uphill, and presently there seemed to be no more hedges and no more trees. She could see nothing, in fact, but a dense darkness on either side. She leaned forward and pressed her face against the window, just as the carriage gave a big jolt. "'Eh? We're on the moor now, sure enough,' said Mrs. Medlock." The carriage lamps shed a yellow light on a rough-looking road which seemed to be cut through bushes and low-growing things which ended in the great expanse of dark apparently spread out before and round them. A wind was rising and making a singular, wild, low, rushing sound. It's... it's not the sea, 
is it? said Mary, looking round at her companion. No, not it, answered Mrs. Medlock. Nor it isn't fields nor mountains. It's just miles and miles and miles of wild land that nothing grows on but heather and gorse and broom, and nothing lives on but wild ponies and sheep. I feel as if it might be the sea, if there were water on it, said Mary. It sounds like the sea just now. That's the wind blowing through the bushes, Mrs. Medlock said. It's a wild, dreary enough place to my mind, though there's plenty that likes it, particularly when the heather's in bloom. On and on they drove through the darkness, and though the rain stopped, the wind rushed by and whistled and made strange sounds. The road went up and down, and several times the carriage passed over a little bridge beneath which water rushed very fast with a great deal of noise. Mary felt as if the drive would never come to an end, and that the wide bleak moor was a wide expanse of black ocean through which she was passing on a strip of dry land. I don't like it, she said to herself. I don't like it. And she pinched her thin lips more tightly together. The horses were climbing up a hilly piece of road when she first caught sight of a light. Mrs. Medlock saw it as soon as she did and drew a long sigh of relief. Eh, I am glad to see that bit of light twinkling, she exclaimed. It's the light in the lodge window. We shall get a good cup of tea after a bit at all events. It was after a bit, as she said. For when the carriage passed through the park gates, there were still two miles of avenue to drive through, and the trees, which nearly met overhead, made it seem as if they were driving through a long, dark vault. They drove out of the vault into a clear space and stopped before an immensely long but low built house which seemed to ramble round a stone court. At first, Mary thought that there were no lights at all in the windows. But as she got out of the carriage, she saw that one room in a corner upstairs showed a dull glow. The entrance door was a huge one made of massive, curiously shaped panels of oak, studded with big iron nails and bound with great iron bars. It opened into an enormous hall, which was so dimly lighted that the faces in the portraits on the walls and the figures in the suits of armour made Mary feel that she did not want to look at them. As she stood on the stone floor, she looked a very small, odd little black figure, and she felt as small and lost and odd as she looked. A neat, thin old man stood near the manservant who opened the door for them. You are to take her to her room, he said in a husky voice. He doesn't want to see her. He's going to London in the morning. Very well, Mr. Pitcher, Mrs. Medlock answered. So long as I know what's expected of me, I can manage. What's expected of you, Mrs. Medlock, Mr. Pitcher said, is that you make sure that he's not disturbed and that he doesn't see what he doesn't want to see. And then Mary Lennox was led up a broad staircase and down a long corridor and up a short flight of steps and through another corridor and another until a door opened in a wall and she found herself in a room with a fire in it and a supper on a table. 
Mrs. Medlock said unceremoniously, Well, here you are. This room and the next are where you'll live, and you must keep to them. Don't you forget that. It was in this way that Mistress Mary arrived at Misselwaite Manor, and she had perhaps never felt quite so contrary in all her life. Chapter 4 Martha When she opened her eyes in the morning, it was because a young housemaid had come into her room to light the fire and was kneeling on the hearth rug, raking out the cinders noisily. Mary lay and watched her for a few moments, and then began to look about the room. She had never seen a room at all like it, and thought it curious and gloomy. The walls were covered with tapestry, with a forest scene embroidered on it. There were fantastically dressed people under the trees, and in the distance there was a glimpse of the turrets of a castle. There were hunters, and horses, and dogs, and ladies. Mary felt as if she were in the forest with them. Out of a deep window she could see a great climbing stretch of land which seemed to have no trees on it and to look rather like an endless, dull, purplish sea. What is that? she said, pointing out of the window. Martha, the young housemaid, who had just risen to her feet, looked and pointed also. That there? she said. Yes, that's the moor, with a good-natured grin. Does thou like it? No, answered Mary. I hate it. That's because thou'rt not used to it, Martha said, going back to her hearth. Thou's things are too big and bare now, but thou will like it. Do you? inquired Mary. Ah, that I do, answered Martha, cheerfully polishing away at the grate. I just love it. It's none bare. It's covered with growing things. I smell sweet. It's fair lovely in spring and summer when the gorse and broom and ever's in flower. It smells a honey, and there's such a lot of fresh air, and the sky looks so high, and the bees and skylarks make such a noise humming and singing. Eh, I wouldn't live away from the moor for anything. Mary listened to her with a grave, puzzled expression. The native servants she had been used to in India were not in the least like this. They were obsequious, unservile, and did not presume to talk to their masters as if they were their equals. They made salams and called them protector of the poor and names of that sort. Indian servants were commanded to do things, not asked. It was not the custom to say please and thank you, and Mary had always slapped her ayah in the face when she was angry. She wondered a little what this girl would do if one slapped her in the face. She was a round, rosy, good-natured-looking creature, but she had a sturdy way which made Mistress Mary wonder if she might not even slap back, if the person who slapped her was only a little girl. "'You are a strange servant,' she said from her pillows, rather haughtily. Martha set up on her heels, with her blacking brush in her hand, and laughed, without seeming the least out of temper. <laughs> I know that, she said. If there was a grand missus at Misselwit, I should never have been one of the under housemaids. I might have been left to be scullery maid, but I'd never have been let upstairs. I'm too common, 
and I talk too much Yorkshire. But this is a funny house for all it's so grand. Seems like there's neither master nor mistress except Mr. Pitcher and Mrs. Midlock. Mr. Craven, he won't be troubled about anything when he's here, and he's nearly always away. Mrs. Midlock gave me the place out of kindness. She told me she could never have done it if Misselwit had been like the other big houses. Are you going to be my servant? Mummy asked, still in her imperious little Indian way. Martha began to rub her grate again. I'm Mrs. Medlock's servant, she said stoutly, and she's Mr. Craven's. But I'm to do the housemaid's work up here and wait on you a bit. But you won't need much waiting on. Who is going to dress me? demanded Mary. Martha set up on her heels again and stared. She spoke in broad Yorkshire in her amazement. Cannot they dress thus in? she said. What do you mean? I don't understand your language, said Mary. Eh, I forgot, Martha said. Mrs. Medlock told me I'd have to be careful or you wouldn't know what I was saying. I mean, can't you put on your own clothes? No, answered Mary, quite indignantly. I never did in my life. My eye dressed me, of course. Well, said Martha, evidently not in the least aware that she was impudent, it's time thou should learn. Thou cannot begin younger. It'll do thee good to wait on that sin a bit. My mother always said she couldn't see why grand people's children didn't turn out to be fair fools. What with nurses and being washed and dressed and took out to walk as if they were puppets. It is different in India, said Mistress Mary disdainfully. She could scarcely stand this. But Martha was not at all crushed. Eh, I can see it's different, she answered almost sympathetically. I dare say it's because there's such a lot of blacks there instead of respectable white people. When I heard you was coming from India, I thought you was a black too. Mary sat up in bed, furious. What? she said. What? You thought I was a native? You, you, daughter of a pig? Martha stared and looked hot. Who are you calling names? she said. You needn't be so vexed. That's not the way for a young lady to talk. I've nothing against the blacks. When you read about them at tracks, they're always very religious. You always read as a black's a man and a brother. I've never seen a black, and I was fair pleased to think I was going to see one close. When I came in to light your fire this morning, I crept up to your bed and pulled the cover back careful to look at you. And there you was, disappointedly. No more black than me, for all you're so yellow. Mary did not even try to control her rage and humiliation. You thought I was a native? You dead? You don't know anything about natives. They are not people. They're servants who must salam to you. You know nothing about India. You know nothing about anything. She was in such a rage and felt so helpless before the girl's simple stare. And somehow she suddenly felt so horribly lonely and far away from everything she understood and which understood her that she threw herself face downwards on the pillows and burst into passionate sobbing. She sobbed so unrestrainedly that good-natured Yorkshire Martha was a little frightened and quite sorry for her. She went to the bed and bent over her. Eh, you mustn't cry like that there, she begged. You mustn't for sure. 
I didn't know you'd be vexed. I don't know anything about anything. Just like you said. I beg your pardon, miss. Do stop crying. There was something comforting and really friendly in her queer Yorkshire speech and sturdy way, which had a good effect on Mary. She gradually ceased crying and became quiet. Martha looked relieved. It's time for thee to get up now, she said. Mrs. Medlock says I was to carry that breakfast and tea and dinner into the room next to this. It's been made into a nursery for thee. I'll help thee on with thy clothes if thou'll get out of bed. If the buttons are at the back, thou cannot button them up thyself. When Mary at last decided to get up, the clothes Martha took from the wardrobe were not the ones she had worn when she arrived the night before with Mrs. Medlock. Those are not mine, she said. Mine are black. She looked the thick white wool coat and dress over and added with cool approval, Those are nicer than mine. These are the ones that must put on, Martha answered. Mr. Craven ordered Mrs. Medlock to get him in London. He said, I won't have a child dressed in black, wandering about like a lost soul, he said. It'll make the place sadder than it is. Put colour on her. Mother said she knew what he meant. Mother always knows what her body means. She doesn't hold with black herself. I hate black things, said Mary. The dressing process was one which taught them both something. Martha had buttoned up her little sisters and brothers, but she had never seen a child who stood still and waited for another person to do things for her, as if she had neither hands nor feet of her own. Why doesn't that put on... Why doesn't that put on their own shoes? She said, when Mary quietly held out her foot. My yacht did it, answered Mary, staring. It was the custom. She said that very often. It was the custom. The native servants were always saying it. If one told them to do a thing their ancestors had not done for a thousand years, they gazed at one mildly and said, It is not the custom. And one knew that was the end. And one knew that was the end of the matter. It had not been the custom that Mistress Mary should do anything but stand and allow herself to be dressed like a doll. But before she was ready for breakfast, she began to suspect that her life at Misselwaite Manor would end by teaching her a number of things quite new to her. Things such as putting on her own shoes and stockings, and picking up things she let fall. If Martha had been a well-trained fine young lady's maid, she would have been more subservient and respectful, and would have known that it was her business to brush hair and button boots, and pick things up and lay them away. She was, however, only an untrained Yorkshire rustic, who had been brought up in a moorland cottage with a swarm of little brothers and sisters who had never dreamed of doing anything but waiting on themselves and on the younger ones who were either babies in arms or just learning to totter about and tumble over things. If Mary Lennox had been a child who was ready to be amused, she would perhaps have laughed at Martha's readiness to talk. But Mary only listened to her coldly and wondered at her freedom of manner. At first she was not at all interested, but gradually, as the girl rattled on in her good-tempered, homely way, Mary began to notice what she was saying. "'Eh? You can see them all,' she said. "'That's twelve of us and my father only gets sixteen shillings a week. I can tell you my mother's put a ticket porridge for them all. They tumble about on the moor, and they play there all day, and Mother says they earn on the moor fattens them. 
She says she believes that they ate the grass same as the wild ponies do. Ah, Dickon. He's 12 years old and he's got a young pony he calls his own. Where did he get it? asked Mary. He found it on the moor when his mother, when he was a little one, and he began to make friends with it and he gave it bits of bread and pluck young grass for it. And it got to like him, so it follows him a bit and it lets him get on his back. Dickens a kind lad and animals likes him. Mary had never possessed an animal pet of her own and had always thought she should like one. So she began to feel a slight interest in Dickon. And as she had never before been interested in anyone but herself, it was the dawning of a healthy sentiment. When she went into the room which had been made into a nursery for her, she found that it was rather like the one she had slept in. It was not a child's room, but a grown-up person's room, with gloomy old pictures on the walls and heavy old oak chairs. A table in the centre was set with a good substantial breakfast, but she had always had a very small appetite, and she looked with something more than indifference at the first plate Martha set before her. "'I don't want it,' she said. "'Dad doesn't want the porridge!' Martha exclaimed incredulously. "'No, Dad doesn't know how good it is. Put a bit of trickle on it, or a bit of sugar.' "'I don't want it!' repeated Mary. "'Eh?' said Martha. "'I can't abide to see good victuals go to waste. "'If our children was at this table, they'd clean its bay in five minutes.' "'Why?' said Mary coldly. "'Why?' echoed Martha. "'Because they scarce ever had their stomachs full in their lives. "'They're as hungry as young hawks and foxes.' "'I don't know what it is to be hungry,' said Mary, "'with the indifference of ignorance.' "'Martha looked indignant.' "'Well, it would do thee good to try it. "'I can see that plain enough,' she said outspokenly. "'I've not patience with folks that sit round and just stares at good bread and meat. "'My word! "'Don't I wish Dickon and Phil and Jane and the rest of them had what's here under their pinafores?' "'Why don't you take it to then?' suggested Mary. "'It's not mine,' answered Mary stoutly. "'And this isn't my day out. "'I get my day out once a month, same as the rest.' Then I go home and clean up the mother and give her a day's wrist. Mary drank some tea and ate a little toast and some marmalade. You wrap up warm and run out and play, you, said Martha. It'll do you good and give you some stomach for your meat. Mary went to the window. There were gardens and paths and big trees, but everything looked dull and wintry. Aunt, why should I go out in a day like this? Well, if that doesn't go out, that I'll have to stay in. And what's I've got to do? Mary glanced about her. There was nothing to do. When Mrs. Medlock had prepared the nursery, she had not thought of amusement. Perhaps it would be better to go and see what the gardens were like. Will you go with me? she inquired. Martha stared. You'll go by yourself, she answered. You'll have to learn to play like other children does when they haven't got sisters and brothers. Our Dickon could often the moor by himself and plays for hours. That's how he made friends with the pony. He's got sheep on the moor that knows him, and birds as calms and eats out of his hand. However little there is to eat, he always says a bit of bread to coax his pets. It was really this mention of Dickon which made Mary decide to go out, though she was not aware of it. 
There would be birds outside, though there would not be ponies or sheep. They would be different from the birds in India, and it might amuse her to look at them. Martha found her coat and hat for her, and a pair of stout little boots, and she showed her her way downstairs. If thou goes round, thou'll find thou'll come to the gardens," she said, pointing to a gate in a wall of shrubbery. "There's lots of flowers in summer time, but there's nothing blooming now." She seemed to hesitate a second before she added, "One of the gardens is locked up. No one has been in it for ten years." "Why?" asked Mary in spite of herself. Here was another locked door added to the hundred in the strange house. Mister Craven had it shut when his wife died so sudden. He wouldn't let no one go inside. It was her garden. He locked the door and dug a hole and buried the key. There's Missus Midlock's bell ringing. I must run. After she was gone, Mary turned down the walk which led to the door in the shrubbery. She could not help thinking about the garden which no one had been into for ten years. She wondered what it would look like and whether there were any flowers still alive in it. When she had passed through the shrubbery gate, she found herself in great gardens with wide lawns and winding walks with clipped borders. There were trees and flower beds and evergreens clipped into strange shapes, and a large pool with an old grey fountain in its midst. But the flower beds were bare and wintry, and the fountain was not playing. This was not the garden which was shut up. How could a garden be shut up? You could always walk into a garden. She was just thinking this when she saw that at the end of the path she was following, there seemed to be a long wall with ivy growing over it. She was not familiar enough with England to know that she was coming upon the kitchen gardens where the vegetables and fruit were growing. She went toward the wall and found that there was a green door in the ivy, and that it stood open. This was not the closed garden, evidently. And she could go into it. She went through the door and found that it was a garden with walls all round it, and that it was only one of several walled gardens which seemed to open into one another. She saw another open green door revealing bushes and pathways between beds containing winter vegetables. Fruit trees were trained flat against the wall, and over some of the beds there were glass frames. The place was bare and ugly enough, Mary thought. As she stood and stared about her, it might be nicer in summer when things were green, but there was nothing pretty about it now. Presently, an old man with a spade over his shoulder walked through the door leading from the second garden. He looked startled when he saw Mary, and then touched his cap. He had a surly old face and did not seem at all pleased to see her. But then she was displeased with his garden and wore her quite contrary expression, and certainly did not seem at all pleased to see him. What is this place? She asked. One of the kitchen gardens, he answered. What is that? Said Mary, pointing through the other green door. Another of them, shortly. There's another to the other side of the wall, and then there's the orchard on the other side of that. Can I go in then? Asked Mary. It's a wax, but there's not to see. Mary made no response. She went down the path and through the second green door. There she found more walls and winter vegetables and glass frames, but in the second wall there was another green door, and it was not open. 
Perhaps it led into the garden which no one had seen for ten years. Ah, she was not at all a timid child, and always did what she wanted to do. Mary went to the green door and turned the handle. She hoped the door would not open, because she wanted to be sure she had found the mysterious garden. But it did open quite easily, and she walked through it and found herself in an orchard. There were walls all round it also, and trees trained against them, and there were bare fruit trees growing in the winter brown grass. But there was no green door to be seen anywhere. Mary looked for it, and yet, when she had entered the other end of the garden, she had noticed that the wall did not seem to end with the orchard, but to extend beyond it as if it enclosed a place at the other side. She could see the tops of trees above the wall, and when she stood still, she saw a bird with a bright red breast sitting on the topmost branch of one of them, and suddenly he burst into his winter song. Almost as if he had caught sight of her and was calling to her, she stopped and listened to him, and somehow his cheerful, friendly little whistle gave her a pleased feeling. Even a disagreeable little girl may be lonely, and the big closed house and big bare moor and big bare gardens had made this one feel as if there was no one left in the world but herself. If she had been an affectionate child who had been used to being loved, she would have broken her heart. But even though she was Mistress Mary, quite contrary, she was desolate, and the bright-breasted little bird brought a look into her sour little face, which was almost a smile. She listened to him until he flew away. He was not like an Indian bird, and she liked him and wondered if she should ever see him again. Perhaps he lived in the mysterious garden and knew all about it. Perhaps it was because she had nothing whatever to do that she thought so much of the deserted garden. She was curious about it and wanted to see what it was like. Why had Mister Archibald Craven buried the key? If he had liked his wife so much, why did he hate her garden? She wondered if she should ever see him, but she knew that if she did, she should not like him. And he would not like her, and that she should only stand and stare at him and say nothing, though she should be wanting dreadfully to ask him why he had done such a queer thing. People never like me, and I never like people. She thought, and I never can talk as the Crawford children could. They were always talking and laughing and making noises. She thought of the robin and of the way he seemed to sing his song at her. And as she remembered the tree top he perched on, she stopped rather suddenly on the path. I believe that tree was in the secret garden. I feel sure it was, she said. There was a wall around this place, and there was no door. She walked back into the first kitchen garden she had entered and found the old man digging there. She went and stood beside him and watched him a few moments in her cold little way. He took no notice of her, and so at last she spoke to him. "I have been into the other gardens," she said. "There was nothing to prevent there," he answered crustily. "I went into the orchard. There was no dog at the door to bite there," he answered. "There was no door there into the other garden," said Mary. "What garden?" he said in a rough voice, stopping his digging for a moment. The one on the other side of the wall," answered Mistress Mary. "There are trees there. I saw the tops of them, 
a bird with a red breast was sitting on one of them, and he sang. To her surprise, the surly old weather-beaten face actually changed its expression. A slow smile spread over it, and the gardener looked quite different. It made her think that it was curious how much nicer a person looked when he smiled. She had not thought of it before. He turned about to the orchard side of his garden and began to whistle, a low, soft whistle. She could not understand how such a surly man could make such a coaxing sound. Almost the next moment, a wonderful thing happened. She heard a soft little rushing flight through the air, and it was the bird with the red breast flying to them. And he actually alighted on the big clod of earth quite near to the gardener's foot. Here he is," chuckled the old man, and then he spoke to the birds as if he were speaking to a child. "Where hast thou been, that cheeky little beggar?" he said. "I've not seen thee before today. Has that begun that courting this early in the season? That's too forward." The bird put his tiny head on one side and looked up at him with his soft, bright eye, which was like a black dewdrop. He seemed quite familiar and not the least afraid. He hopped about and pecked the earth briskly, looking for seeds and insects. It actually gave Mary a queer feeling in her heart, because he was so pretty and cheerful and seemed so like a person. He had a tiny plump body and a delicate beak and slender, delicate legs. Will he always come when you call him? She asked, almost in a whisper. Ah, but he will. I've known him ever since he was a fledgling. He come over the nest in the other garden when first he flew over the wall. He was too weak to fly for a few days, and we got friendly. When he went over the wall again, the rest of the brood was gone, and he was lonely. And he came back to me. What kind of bird is he? Mary asked. Doesn't that know? He's a robin redbreast, and they're the friendliest, curiousest birds alive. They're almost as friendly as dogs, if you know how to get on with them. Watch him pecking about there and looking round at us now and again. He knows we're talking about him. It was the queerest thing in the world to see the old fellow. He looked at the plump little scarlet waistcoated bird as if he were proud and fond of him. He's a conceited one. He chuckled. He likes to hear folk talk about him. I'm curious. Bless me! There never was his lack for curiosity and meddling. He's always coming to see what I'm planting. He knows about all things, Mister Crave, and never troubles himself to find out. He's the head gardener, he is. The robin hopped about busily pecking the soil, and now and then stopped and looked at them a little. Mary thought his black dewdrop eyes gazed at her with great curiosity. It really seemed as if he were finding out all about her. The queer feeling in her heart increased. Where did the rest of the brood fly to? She asked. There's no known. The old ones turn 'em out in their nest and make 'em fly, and are scattered before you know it. This one was a known one, and he knew he was lonely. Mistress Mary went a step nearer to the robin and looked at him very hard. I'm lonely, she said. She had not known before that this was one of the things which made her feel sour and cross. She seemed to find it out when the robin looked at her, and she looked at the robin. The old gardener pushed his cap back on his bald head and stared at her a minute. "I'd buy the little wench from India. 
he asked. Mary nodded. Then no wonder that lonely. That'll be lonelier before that's done, he said. He began to dig again, driving his spade deep into the rich black garden soil, while the robin hopped about very busily employed. What is your name? Mary inquired. He stood up to answer her. Ben Weverstaff, he answered, and then he added with a surly chuckle, <laughs> I'm lonely myself, except when he's with me, and he jerked his thumb toward the robin. He's ill. He's the only friend I've got. I have no friends at all, said Mary. I never had. My ayah didn't like me, and I never played with anyone. It is a Yorkshire habit to say what you think with blunt frankness, and old Ben Weatherstaff was a Yorkshire moor man. Thou and me are a good bit of luck, he said. We was war that are this in cloth. We're neither of us good-looking, and we're both of us as sour as we look. We've got the same nasty tempers, both of us, I'll warrant. This was plain speaking, and Mary Lennox had never heard the truth about herself in her life. Native servants always salaamed. Native servants always salaamed and submitted to you, whatever you did. She had never thought much about her looks, but she wondered if she was as unattractive as Ben Weatherstaff, and she also wondered if she looked as sour as she had looked before the robin came. She actually began to wonder also if she was nasty-tempered. She felt uncomfortable. Suddenly, a clear, rippling little sand broke out near her, and she turned round. She was standing a few feet away from a young apple tree, and the robin had flown onto one of its branches and had burst into a scrap of a song. Ben Weatherstaff laughed outright. <laughs> what did he do that for? asked Mary. He's made up his mind to make friends with thee, replied Ben. Dang me if he hasn't took a fancy to thee. To me, said Mary, and she moved toward the little tree softly and looked up. Would you make friends with me? she said to the robin, just as if she was speaking to a person. Would you? And she did not say it either in her hard little voice or in her imperious Indian voice but in a tone so soft and eager and coaxing that Ben Weatherstaff was as surprised as she had been when she heard him whistle. Why, he cried out, that's it, that as nice and human as if I was a real child instead of a sharp old woman. That's it, it's almost like Dickon talks to his wild things on the moor. Do you know Dickon? Murray asked, turning round rather in a hurry. Everybody knows him. Dickon's wandering about everywhere. That very black brazen ever bellows knows him. I warned the foxes should know him where the cubs lies, and the skylarks doesn't hide their nest from him. Mary would have liked to ask them more questions. She was almost as curious about Ticken as she was about the deserted garden. But just that moment, the robin, who had ended his song, gave a little shake of his wings, spread them, and flew away. He had made his visit and had other things to do. He has flown over the wall, Mary cried out, watching him. He has flown into the orchard. He has flown across the other wall, into the garden where there is no door. He lives there, said old Ben. It came out of the egg there. If he's caught in, he's making up to some young madam of a robin that lives among the old rose trees there. Rose trees, said Mary. Are there rose trees? 
Ben Weatherstaff took up his spade again and began to dig. There was ten years ago, he mumbled. I should like to see them, said Mary. Where is the green door? There must be a door somewhere. Ben drove his spade deep and looked as uncompanionable as he had looked when she first saw him. There was ten years ago, but there isn't no, he said. No door, cried Mary. That must be. None as anyone can find, and none is anyone's business. Don't you be a meddlesome wench and poke your nose where it's not cause to go. Here, I must go on with my work. Get your gun and play, you. I've no more time. And he actually stopped digging, threw his spade over his shoulder and walked off, without even glancing at her or saying goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Carl. Hi. Carl needs a website for his business. I sell the world's finest flavored toothpicks. But sadly for Carl, he doesn't know all the techie, complicated website stuff. So he's just out of luck, and his business is doomed to fail in this digital age of... Um, actually, I got my website set up super fast and easy with Invicta.services. You... What? Yeah, it was super easy. I just picked the style I liked, made a few quick, simple customizations, and bam! Awesome website where I can sell my flavored toothpicks. But that's, well... Amazing? I was going to say, probably expensive. Actually, getting a website with Invicta starts at only $24 per month. $24 per month? That's less than what I spend on vocal creams per month. It's awesome. It gets you website hosting, a beautiful, professionally designed, customizable template, ongoing site maintenance, regular WordPress plugin, and template updates. I don't say this often. But, wow. I know, right? Invicta.services, a simple, affordable way to get a beautiful, professional website for your business. Just go to Invicta.services to launch your website today. That's Invicta, I-N-V-I-C-T-A dot services. Invicta.services, a professional website, headache-free. And just for Another World Audiobooks listeners, go to Invicta.services and then enter the code ANOTHERWORLD to get your first month free. That's right. Go to Invicta.services and enter ANOTHERWORLD as your coupon code to get an entire month free and get started with your professional website at Invicta.services.